Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 7, the starting in verse 14 and going to the end of the chapter. It's on page 49 in your blue pew Bible, if you want to follow along. Exodus 7, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this passage. Help us to understand it, and I pray that if there be a hard heart among us, that you would break that heart of stone, that you would turn it for your glory. Father, something supernatural takes place, or so because of our hardness, you have to perform a miracle to soften us, to hear your words. And I pray that you would perform that miracle even now, as we see a man who stubbornly refuses to hear your word. Would you please, Lord, help us to hear, help us to obey, and help us to marvel at your great grace. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're a kid here today, thank you for joining us here in the service. I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. So can you kids, can you help me out and imagine with me for a moment what would happen What would happen if worldwide gasoline stopped making fire? Gasoline didn't explode. Gasoline just lost its power to combust. What would happen? Well, here's what would happen. Cars would roll to a stop on the highway, and people would have to get out and walk. There would be no more food in your local grocery stores because the trucks wouldn't be able to get to it. 
I would assume that the electricity would be affected by that as well because there's a lot of gasoline that goes into our electrical grid. Ships in the middle of the sea would immediately stop and begin to float on the surface of the waters. People in hospitals would be endangered. Children, this is probably the greatest tragedy of all. Rednecks the world over would not be able to start their campfires. <laughs> you turn on the TV, this probably was the most shocking of all. Republicans would blame Democrats, and Democrats would blame Republicans. <laughs> what if, what if, in the middle of this odd circumstance, an 80-year-old preacher stood up and said, this is God's doing. Would the country, would the world listen? I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. And we can see that from this passage today. We see the first of the ten plagues. These ten plagues will be catastrophic. They will wreak havoc in the nation. And today is the first of ten. I don't intend, by the way, to spend one sermon on each plague. I think that would um, probably be a little much to spend ten full weeks on the plagues alone. So we will combine them in some sermons. But because this is the first public plague, and this is a very involved one, I thought it would be best to stick with just this one today. So, if you opened your Bibles and you're in Exodus chapter 7, let's very briefly review what brought us to this point. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Greg, it's my pleasure to serve as the lead pastor here, and we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And so you're sort of jumping into the middle of the story that hopefully will bring you along well enough. God has sent Moses and his brother Aaron, and they've gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, with a very reasonable request. Three days for worship. Three days and three days alone. And stubbornly, Pharaoh stubbornly refuses. He says, no. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he gives him a sign. Do you remember what that sign was last week? He took Aaron's staff, and they threw it on the ground, and it turned into a mighty serpent, a tannin, some sort of scaled beast. We're not even sure what it was, but it was huge. And so Pharaoh calls in his magicians, and they do the same with their staffs, and Aaron's staff gobbles up Pharaoh's magician's staffs. And this sign is clearly a symbol of God's superiority and power and might over all things relating to Egyptian worship and religion and wisdom and so forth. And Pharaoh doesn't take this to heart because he has this little excuse. My, my magicians were able to do something similar by their secret arts, and so he stubbornly refuses. And so far, all of God's commands to Pharaoh have been relatively private. God went to, Moses went to Pharaoh initially in a private meeting. Then the leaders of Israel went to Pharaoh in a private meeting, and then Moses goes back to Pharaoh in a private meeting, a semi-private meeting. There's, of course, people in the court who attend, wise men in the kingdom who are there. But by and large, these words have been limited to the scope of Pharaoh's court. And so today, God begins to ratchet up the pressure. 
And what we see is the first of a huge public miracle that affects the entire nation. And as we noted last week, these, the announcement of these plagues has a pattern. Moses meets Pharaoh at the Nile, and then Moses meets Pharaoh in his court, and then Moses gives no announcement at all. And they go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, like that. And so this being the first of the three, the first of this pattern of three, Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh at the Nile, and God says, you've hardened your heart. You need to obey, you need to let my people go, and I will strike the water and turn the water into blood. Now we're going to divide up the sermon today essentially into two, let's call it two unequal halves. That's, a, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? There will be two points, and uh, two points. The first one will be more of a fact, and then the, the second half will be more like theology. So let's, let's begin with this fact, okay? Just so we can get this established and move forward with the rest of the story, because God is mostly trying to communicate to us theological truths rather than scientific facts. So let's ask this question. When Moses struck the Nile and it turned into blood, did it turn into actual blood or did it turn into something resembling blood? Or was there a third option, which I didn't see seriously discussed, is that the water had blood in it. I didn't see that one seriously discussed. Let's get this point very clearly established. Number one, what Moses does is clearly miraculous and supernatural. This is an event. It's instant. It takes place just as Moses says it will. He strikes and it turns into blood or at least as blood. And it happens nationwide. It happens in the rivers and the canals. It happens in water pots. It has a dramatic effect. It kills the fish. It's stinks, it can't be drunk. It's clearly supernatural. If you were to read commentaries that are of a more liberal perspective that don't want to say this was miraculous, they would say that there was a high iron deposit in the water that made it look red. Or it was a sort of, a, a sort of a bloom of bacteria that turns the water red and makes fish die and makes it stink and makes it unpalatable. The, the problem with that is both of those phenomena occur in Egypt, but they sort of come on in slow development and stages. And this happened instantly. Okay? So what happened was clearly miraculous. Now, as I said before, there are two choices given the fact we're talking about something supernatural and miraculous. Did God turn the Nile into actual blood, or did he miraculously make the water into a blood-colored substance that killed fish and that stunk. Okay? Either one is miraculous. I'm, I want to make that point very clear. Either one of those is miraculous. I would say in the commentaries that I read, it was fairly split. And I've got some, uh, some points for either option you want to take. I want you to look with me in chapter 7, verse 21. It says, And the fish of the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land 
of Egypt. And that verse makes it very challenging, doesn't it? Because it says that the water turned to blood, but there was water in the Nile still. It was unpalatable water. And then it says in verse 21, again at the end, that there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the most natural way to take that, especially the end of verse 21, is to say that it was actual blood. There was real blood throughout the entire nation of Egypt. And that's the main argument for this for this point, that it's the most natural way to take it. Now, I want to be very clear. Some arguments are more important than others. Okay, It's one point in the feather of the cap of the its actual blood, but it is a very big one. And it might outweigh all the rest. Now let's consider the option that it wasn't actual blood, but a blood-colored substance. Okay? And there's, again, keeping it in the mind of the supernatural, this was miraculous, there's some really strong evidence for that as well. Let me point that out to you. If we go with option two, there is the passage, Joel 2.31. And it says that in the end times, in the day of the Lord, the moon will be turned le dam, as blood or into blood. It's the same exact construction that we find here in Exodus. The Hebrew word for blood is dam, and the little prefix on the front of it, le, doesn't help us a lot in understanding it because it can mean into, or it can also mean like or as. And so, here in this passage and in 2.31, we see a scenario where the moon in Joel 2.31, is turned into blood. Does that mean the blood becomes, the moon becomes actual blood? No, it means the moon turns red. Furthermore, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word dam, blood, refers, in many instances, not to a substance, but to a color. It turned into a blood-like color. Also, there are, as I said before, natural phenomenon that take place in Egypt, but not on this scale, not in this immediacy. And it's the sort of thing that ancients talk about where the Nile turned into blood, but we know now that it's a, it's a, it's a natural algae bloom that takes place in the water, and it does kill the fish, and it does stink, but it comes on naturally. It comes on steadily. Also, there are in-text descriptions of consequences more consistent with this second interpretation. Let me give an example. Imagine for a moment if that river turned 100% into animal blood. There's a lot of water in blood. And as soon as that water evaporated off, you would have a coagulated, hardening mass of oil and protein. There would develop a skim on top that you could slap with your hand if you dared slap it. And it would be ooey and gooey and bubbly underneath that essentially turned into something more resembling meat than liquid. 
the environmental consequences of something like that would be utterly and completely catastrophic. This passage is describing water that kills fish, water that you can't drink, water that you can... Um, water that stinks, but water that you can go out and around and dig around the Nile and find some fresh water preserves. Okay? I've said all that to say this. If you were to put me on the spot and say, Greg, which was it, blood or a blood-like substance? I would say to you, I don't know. I can see it either way. It's miraculous either way. And I, and I want to just be so very clear about that. I just am not sure. And whenever I read an opinion, I go like this. I go, you know, he makes some really good points. It's probably that one. But I'd probably better check this commentator. And I go over there and I go, oh, mm, he makes some good points too. That's one that's probably the one that's it. Let us say, within the body of faith, within it being a miracle, absolutely supernatural activity, it's okay to take either position. And with either position, it is a catastrophic event that gets everybody's attention immediately. And suddenly, you've got God doing something really profound here in the nation of Egypt. So, let's also understand that God is not primarily talking here about science. It's not his, his concern isn't scientific. As we'll see, his primary concern is theological. So let's now move on to the theology. This theology is a first step of sovereignty. And the first thing that I want us to notice is the comprehensive nature of the plague. When Andrew read this passage in our hearing this morning, did you hear it? All the water, all the land of Egypt, all the Egyptians, it says that all the canals, all the ponds, all the pots. Herodotus, the Greek historian, said the gift of the Nile is Egypt. And it's true, the Nile is this amazing body of water. It's Depending on who you ask and depending on how you tally it up, the longest river in the world, maybe the second longest, there are some who say the Amazon is longer, but for all of its length, it's actually a rather gentle flowing river. It's a huge fishery. It's, uh, the, the entire nation of Egypt eats from its uh, bounty. It's a, a, a navigable water source. It flows gently enough to where you can put boats on it and little sampans and move around on it and move goods hither, tither, and yon. It doesn't rush ahead and wipe things out. The Nile floods every year and it brings rich dirt into the agricultural areas in the form of silt. Egypt is the breadbasket of the Middle East because the Nile overflows and creates all this bread and grain and rich soil. And it says here that, and, and so the, you, would, you can imagine with something like this, people build little canals off of it. We do this here in the valley. You can understand this. 
We have one river that flows through the Ogden Valley, and how many little canals come off of that thing? People open up gates, and it floods their lawn. So much water off of a little stream that pales in comparison to the size of the Nile. People create little reservoirs and pools. People use the water for washing and cooking. It's potable. You boil it, it gives you no diseases. And suddenly, all of that, all of it, turns into this blood or blood-like substance. The second thing I want us to notice is that this first event foreshadows what is to come. It's the Israelites who shed the blood of a lamb and take blood and put it on the doorposts of their house. This story ends when Pharaoh's army is dead at the bottom of the Red Sea. This is foreshadowing what God is about to do moving forward. Furthermore, we need to consider the catastrophic nature of this event. All areas of life, agriculture, medicine, travel, food, service, cleanliness. All of it is interrupted. All of it is thrown into arrears for seven full days. People have to go to extreme measures to find potable drinking water. The land stinks. The fish die. People are hungry. This is the first public event of God breaking in and saying, I want you to let my people go. Now, if you are one of God's children, you should take great confidence in this. Look at the links God is willing to go to deliver you. Look what he was willing to do to this nation simply to get his people out of there. And this is the first of ten. Just the first one. Second, this theology is a statement of power. Look at verse 17 of chapter 7. It says, thus says the Lord, by this, by this thing that I'm about to do, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh has already mocked God. He's already said, I don't know who the Lord is. Who's the Lord? You come to me telling me about Yahweh. And he goes on to, flaunt his power in the face of God. And God says, by this you will know. By this. So what was it about this? That God intended for it to be so theological. What was it about this event that God would say, can't you see now? Well, I want you to know that God is assaulting Egypt's pantheon of gods with this. The river itself, the Nile River itself was considered a god. And in fact, all of the gods of Egypt interacted and had many as their source, the Nile River. The main river of the Nile was a god called Hapi. We've talked about him before and we'll talk about him again. Hapi was a him-her, was a boy and a girl. He was a boy in the sense that he would create, uh, that he would fertilize the nation, and he was a girl in the sense that people would take from his bounteous supply. 
I won't get into the other details about Hoppy, but Hoppy was not a kind God. He could be a bit schizophrenic, as you might imagine, being both a boy and a girl. Hoppy was the God of the Nile, responsible for bringing the floods, responsible for the silt, responsible for the agriculture. There was a hymn, I have it written here, a hymn to the Nile. This was part of an Egyptian worship service. In fact, it may have been when Pharaoh went down to the Nile to bathe that he was worshiping the Nile. Also, Pharaoh taught that his power as the God-man had the abilities to make the Nile overflow its banks and make the Nile recede back. Here was a hymn. Here's this hymn to the Nile. I have it. I'm going to read you just two paragraphs of it. Hail to thee, O Nile, who manifests thyself over this land and comes to give life to Egypt. Mysterious is thy issuing forth from the darkness on this day whereon it is celebrated, watering the orchards created by Ra to cause all the cattle to live. You give the earth to drink, inexhaustible one. Path that descends from the sky, loving the bread of Seb and the first fruits of Nipera, you cause the workshops of Thah to prosper. Lord of the fish, during the inundation, no bird alights on the crops. You create the grain, you bring forth the barley, assuring perpetuity to the temples. If you cease your toil and your work, then all that exists is in anguish. If you cease your work, O God of the Nile, O Nile who is a God, all that exists will anguish. And God comes along and says, I own that. I rule that. It's at my command it does this or that. I stand supreme over your gods. I stand supreme over the Nile. I stand supreme over Hopi. In fact, they are not gods at all. I am the supreme Lord, and by this, you will know that I reign. This is what God is telling Pharaoh, and this is what God is telling all the Egyptians. This is a statement of power in terms of retributive justice. Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 1 when the Egyptians were forced by Pharaoh's command to take Hebrew baby boys, innocent, and cast them into the Nile. The Nile that flowed with the blood of these infants is now turning to blood. Because the God of the Hebrews says it's time to let these people go. It's a clear act of retribution. Furthermore, here in our passage today, we see this word strike, strike the Nile. We've grown accustomed to using the word plagues. But if we were to take the Hebrew word and use it to describe these events, we would call it the ten hits, <laughs> the ten strikes, the ten punches. God is clearly with this word strike intending to show that he's active and he's moving and he's bringing justice for his people who have been so hurt.
by these Egyptians. And then last, this plague teaches us a plea for obedience. A plea for obedience. Did you notice as we were reading through this passage how many times we're told about the hardness and stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh's stubbornness, he's hard of heart. He refuses. God says, you have not obeyed through the voice of Moses. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And Moses, even after just this first plague of seeing the catastrophic nature of this river being turned into blood, Moses says, and after all of this, Pharaoh still didn't take it to heart. Now, yes, Pharaoh was able to gather his magicians, and it says by their secret arts, they were able to pull off a trick again. But here's the trouble. Seven days later, the blood went away. And Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do that. Any thinking person would have said, okay, great, you've had your magicians do a trick that creates blood. I don't need any more blood. I need water. (laughs) Can't you turn this back to water? And we're left in this scene with Pharaoh believing a lie, storming off into his palace, stubbornly putting his fingers in his ears and pretending that God doesn't exist and not wanting to listen. And common people, everyday people, are out with back are out with hoes and shovels, backbreaking work, digging canals and wells, just to find something to drink. God is begging him to obey. I want us to think of the grace of God in this plea for obedience. When Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, he says this. Verse 16. Yahweh, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you. Now, we have a few folks here today from the South. Sometimes, When we say you here in Utah, we mean like you singular, or sometimes we mean like you all. I will go home today and I'll tell my wife, I spoke to them all. I'm right now speaking to you all. But what if I were to go up to one of you individually after the service and say, God woke me up in the middle of the night last night, and I have a message just for you. Not for the rest of the congregation, not for my family even, not for me, but just for you. How would that make you feel? Well, it should make you feel very special. It should make you feel responsible. And here, it's specific. It's you in a very singular and familiar kind of way. I'm coming to you. I want you to hear something. Please, let my people go. Don't harden your hearts. Now, 
This is actually, we have one more point, but I want to save that. This is actually where we're going to sort of leave the sermon off here for today. I want to settle in on this point just for a moment. Friends, there are some in here whom God has been coming to Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, with a message just for you. And if you're honest, before the Lord, you would have to say that you have stubbornly refused and hardened your heart and you haven't listened. What will God say to Pharaoh if he lets you skate? What will God say to the people he's judged if he doesn't hold true to his word with you? God says, it is appointed man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no opportunity after you die. You die, and then you're judged. God says, for the wages of sin is death. But the same God who says these things says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same God who promises judgment, and he will follow through. He also promises salvation. For the first several years of our lives, of our married life, rather, my wife and I were involved in an inner-city ministry. It took place on Friday nights. We had kids from all ages who would come to our ministry, mostly mostly African-American kids, some of all races, but it was mostly African-American. Very few had dads who were involved in their lives. In fact, as I think about it, I can't think of any who had a dad in their life. Well, these kids wanted to come and have fun. They wanted to be taught about God, and we would do both of those things. We would feed them dinner. You can imagine that if you have 100 kids in any one place, you do have to have some rules just to make things go smoothly. And we had some rules, very easy rules to follow, like you need to wear a shirt and um, no smoking, uh, no cussing. Um, You you need to uh, listen respectfully when adults are talking. When we wrapped up the dinner, they were allowed to take leftovers, but if there were no leftovers, no fighting over leftovers. We found out that in many cases, kids would take home candy or take home leftovers, and their siblings or their family members would steal from them. It's tragic. So we started making more food. Well, even though it was a fairly low bar on these rules, kids would violate the rules. You know, if you... If you ever want to see human nature come out, just tell somebody not to do something, right? And it became one of my jobs to sit down with the leader of the ministry when it came time to tell a kid he couldn't come back for a few weeks or maybe even forever. I want you to know I am not a confrontational type of person. Many of you know this already. And I break out in hives even thinking about it. But that was one of my jobs, and I hated it. (laughs) 
the leader of the ministry would get down very close and he would lower his voice almost to a whisper. You could barely hear him. And when he did this, like chills would go up my spine. I thought I was in trouble, you know? And he would always say the same thing. He would say, you need to know that there is somebody on this earth who means what they say. And I am God's representative to you to show you that God means what he says. And what I've said, I mean. And you cannot come back next week. You guys aren't in trouble. You can come back next week. (laughs) You can imagine how that would take hold. Think about the permissive culture we live in. Those teenagers would look at him like he had nine heads. They had never met anybody who meant what they said. Dear friends, God means what he says. And when he came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he wasn't just going to go, oh, since you don't want to, no problem. God says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. God says, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And God means what he says. And I would beg you to obey and listen. I would beg you to cling to the grace of God who promises forgiveness and pardon. But don't test his grace. It will not always hold. What if you saw one of these plagues? Would you believe? No. You would not. Simply on the strength of the plague. I have Revelation 9, chapter 20 and tw- verse 20 and 21. This was after, this is, is in the future, and it's after God has poured out plagues upon the entire world, not just Egypt. And after the world has experienced unconscionable plagues, it says this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Friends, the thing that will get you to obey is grace. And God is coming with an offer of grace and pardon. But before you can accept that, you have to believe that he means what he says. If you've been rebelling in your heart against God all these years, Take him at his word and believe, and he will forgive. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, and by that and that alone can you be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to hear your word, to listen, to obey. 
Would you give us grace to respond to your message now? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.